Our broken pieces are an important part of our journey of growing in Christlikeness. A glorious pursuit of experiencing long-term change that only comes from following Jesus. It is an ancient journey of practicing the Christian virtues and living the truly abundant life as God defines it. A life made possible by God's grace, empowered by God's Spirit, and modeled by God's Son. This is the beauty of becoming. Build me a son, O Lord. Those are the beginnings of a prayer uh, to God from Douglas MacArthur about his son, Arthur Douglas MacArthur. He was a general in World War II. He was in the throes of World War II, and things were difficult. He was a supreme allied commander for our forces in the South Pacific. His son, Arthur, was just out of diapers, and he wrote this powerful prayer. I want to read it to you because it ties into our teaching today on surrender. He says, build me a son, O Lord, who will be strong enough to know when he is weak and brave enough to face himself when he is afraid. One who will be proud and unbending and honest defeat and humble and gentle in victory. Build me a son. Build me a son whose wishbone will not be where his backbone should be. A son who will know thee. Lead him, I pray, not in the path of ease and comfort, but under the stress and spur of difficulties and challenges. Here let him learn to stand up in the storm. Here let him learn compassion for those who fail. Build me a son. Build me a son, O Lord, whose heart will be clean, whose goal will be high. A son who will master himself before he seeks to master anyone else. One who will learn to laugh, yet never forget how to weep. One who will reach into the future, yet will never forget the past. Lord, build me a son. And after all these things are his, add I pray. Enough of a sense of humor, so that he may always be serious, yet never take himself too seriously. Give him humility, so that he may always remember the simplicity of greatness, the open mind of true wisdom, and the meekness, the meekness of true strength. Then I, as father, will dare to whisper, I have not lived in vain. Build me a son. I love that prayer for many reasons. One of them is, I love how one of the most powerful men on the planet at that time was about understanding this fact that, that, that true victory comes through surrender. Have you ever considered that? It's the paradox of Christianity. True victory comes through surrender. Well, such is what we're going to talk about today. If you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. Surrender is a state of mind and a condition of the heart. Surrender is a state of mind and a condition of the heart. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we step into yet another week of this incredible series called The Beauty of Becoming. It's in this series in which we're looking at the attributes and the virtues of Jesus. And this week and next week, I'm so excited I get to teach on the virtue of surrender. And next week, we're going to put it into practice with surrender and generosity. But today, I got a task in front of me that I'm excited about. And I'm going to be teaching out of Mark chapter 10. It's a story that is very familiar, and that's the danger of the story. Because we can say, yada, 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 oh, it's the rich young ruler. 
it's a story that lies right in the center of this thing called surrender. Pastor Bob's preached on it a few times. I've preached on the story a few times. I think Pastor Scott and Pastor Brian have preached on this story. But we've got to understand that the Holy Spirit is alive and active, and so is God's Word. So he's going to show us some pretty cool things today. I'm excited about that. So turn to Mark 10. We're going to be in verses 17 through 31. Let me set the scene for what's happening. If we go back 2,000 years ago, Jesus goes to the cross. He dies. He's buried. He's resurrected. But just a handful of days before that time. Jesus is on the outskirts of Jerusalem. He's talked to his disciples about how he's going to be crucified. They didn't understand it. He's talked to them about the need to have childlike faith, to the, the need for humility. That's going to show up in our story today. And he has an encounter with a man called the rich young ruler. Now, the, the story is told in Matthew and Luke and Mark Matthew and Luke can fill in the details, but I chose Mark because Mark is a story, or Mark is a gospel about action and power. His audience is the Roman audience, and they would understand that. There's no coincidence why in the book of Mark, it starts out with talking about Jesus as the Son of God, and it closes with the centurion basically saying, surely this man was the Son of God. Romans respect action and power. That's what this is about. Three characters in this story. Character number one is Jesus. Jesus is the hero of the story. If Jesus is not the hero of any of our preaching, our preaching is in vain here. Right. Second, the rich young ruler. We're going to hear a lot about him. But thirdly, it's this motley crew of disciples because Jesus is not only speaking to the rich young ruler in this story, he's speaking to the disciples and in essence, he's speaking with us. I always want to share the theologians I leaned into, several, but one in particular is Dr. Timothy Keller. He wrote a great book on the book of Mark called Jesus the King. I recommend it to everyone, and so I use that for a lot of today's teaching. A lot of these words are not mine. With that, remember our main, our main thought, surrender is a state of mind and a condition of, a, of the heart, and let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you so much that I get this opportunity to share the words you've given me, to share the words you've given all of us through your word. And I pray that the words that I use, the words that I speak, honor you. I've done the due diligence in study, but God, there's still a delta there that you've got to meet. Please show up, Holy Spirit. Uh, bring, uh, bring life to this sermon. Open our hearts and minds. Help us stay focused on you because it's about you, Jesus. Amen. All right, Mark 10, verse 17. Here we go. As he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So let's talk about this man. Uh, the gospel of Luke talks about the man being a ruler and that he's rich. Matthew says he's young. Uh, some people have said he's Mark. I don't think he is uh, because Mark would have been a teenager during Jesus's time. And this man is obviously a ruler of something. We don't know what. Some have said he's a Roman. I don't think he's a Roman. You don't find a Roman throwing himself at the feet of Jesus too often. I doubt that that's the case. I actually think he's a synagogue ruler, but we simply don't know. We know he's in need of something. So he comes to Jesus and throws himself at Jesus' feet. He wants to know what he needs to do to obtain or inherit eternal life. I love Jesus' first response. It's the Jesus jolt. Jesus is going to jolt him and the disciples. Look at this, verse 18. 
And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Okay, so here's what Jesus is not saying. Uh, Hey, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're both sinners. Let's do the sin thing together. No, Jesus was the sinless son of God. What Jesus is doing is he's setting the scene. He's going to deconstruct what the rich young ruler, as well as the disciples know, as what's really good. And when you ask Jesus a question, get ready, because he's going to give you an answer. He's setting the scene for a Q&A with this man. The man wants Jesus to grade his qualifications. Well, let's look at this, verses 19 and 20. Remember, the rich young ruler has said, what do I need to do to obtain or, or inherit eternal life? It says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he, the rich young ruler, said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Jesus hits home six of the commandments. All of them are based on one thing, relationships. And the, the, the rich young ruler is saying, listen, I've done all these things. Oh, I've done. I've performed all. I've performed all these things. He's all about the external metrics. I once heard a pastor say, when we measure ourselves by our external actions, we'll have a superficial view of sin. And this is how this guy wants to be measured. He wants the rabbi that everybody's talking about to give him that that Jesus bobblehead thumbs up. And Jesus isn't about that. Jesus is about the internals. Remember, Jesus would say that, 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 that what comes out of your mouth is a reflection of what's in your heart. When he throws down with the Pharisees, I love that seven woes speech that he gives. He's like, you Pharisees, you're a bunch of brood of vipers. Zing. And then he says, you're like a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but in the inside, you're dead. And this is the first thing we need to know about surrender. Surrender is about aligning our internal attitudes with those of Jesus our internal attitudes. It's all about what happens inside and what's going on inside our hearts. If our hearts are reflecting Jesus, our external actions will reflect reflect Jesus too. You don't inherit eternal life by your good works. And that flies in the face of, well, at least three of the major world religions. I mean, think about it with Islam. You choke on your chicken bone, you die, you stand in front of Allah, and, and he weighs out your good versus your bad. If your good outweighs your bad, you're in heaven. It's about an external performance. Think about Buddhism or Hinduism. In both of those, it's your acts that you do, those good things that you do that give you not only reincarnation, but also good karma in this life. And it's not that way with Christianity. You see, I know this is Christianity 101, guys, but we just, we need to come back to it often. I need to come back to it often. Salvation is provided in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Salvation is provided in Christ alone. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The Apostle Paul would write, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. Faith, Otherwise, what? We could boast. So it's in Christ alone that we get our salvation. By grace alone, through faith alone. Our actions reflect our faith. And when you surrender your internals, your externals will naturally reflect Jesus. So that's why Jesus jolts this whole exchange. He says, no one is good except God. He's saying, listen, it's great that you're doing all those things. And here's what he doesn't say. Are are you seriously that arrogant to think that you can stand in front of a holy God with 
all the good works you do, but he doesn't. Look what Jesus says, verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Jesus felt a love for him. He didn't, he didn't smack him down. What Jesus is doing is he's, he's, he's setting things up for a crucial conversation. Jesus is being kind versus nice. Now, I've preached on this many times here. It's probably a review for some of you, but that's okay because it's important in this story. Jesus is about crucial conversations. He speaks in truth and love. That's what kindness is. Kindness is speaking in truth and love. It's not just being honest, brutally honest, because brutal honesty is simply that. It's brutal. It's speaking a truth but couched in love. You see, nice is totally different than that. Nice is about flattery, and flattery is about manipulation. You tell someone something nice because you either want something for, from them or you're afraid you're going to get some form of reprisal, and you're saying it to keep this reprisal uh, from happening to you. That's nice. Right. Kind is about courage and compassion. It's about saying to your friend who just got that diagnosis at the correct time, saying, listen, I love you. I'm going to walk with you. But this is going to be really hard. Prepare yourself. In fact, you probably need to get some affairs in order here. But God can do anything. I'm going to walk with you through this. Or I know you're getting a divorce, but listen, I'm going to walk with you through this, but it's going to be hard. And actually, it's going to get harder. But we're going to walk through this, and we're going to see Jesus show up in an amazing way. That's kindness. Nice is simply saying, hey, turn that frown upside down. Just have a little bit more faith and prayer. Out of here. See ya. It's about crucial conversations, not cruddy conversations. Jesus is never about flattery. So what he's going to do is he's going to give this guy a life-changing challenge, verses 21 and 22. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, one thing you lack, underline that, we got to talk about that. Go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But at these words, he, the rich young ruler, was saddened, and he went away grieving. Circle that, underline that, highlight it. We got to Greek out and geek out on that. For he was one who owned much property. One thing you lack. Jesus spoke into his internal issue, and the issue wasn't money and possessions. It was his love of money and possessions. Money is, is a horrific master. In fact, it's a, a truth that we can land on today is that money is a great ser- servant, but a terrible master. Money is a great servant, but a terrible master. We're going to pull this apart next week. Money is a great servant. We can do so much with money. We can. The, the amount of suffering we can alleviate in the world, it, it's not wrong to want to have money. It's the internals that matter, though, and what our motivation is for the money. It, it's a great servant. But for the rich young ruler, it represented his pride. It represented his self-effort. We know that it was his master because our text here says he went away grieving. Right, we got to Greek out and geek out on that word. The word to grieve, it's important. Uh, The Greek word is lupeo, lupeo. What lupeo means is to be tore up from the floor up. It's to be so torn up inside and saddened that you're, it's just like you're being pulled apart. Have you ever leaned back in a chair and, and you catch yourself right before you fall over that feeling? That's what lupeo is. Let me give you an example. In the New Testament, it's used throughout the New Testament for being sad, being grieved. Uh, Jesus has gone to the cross. He's died. He's buried. He's resurrected. And just before that, Peter has denied Jesus three times. 
And so Jesus wants to restore Peter. So he has breakfast with him on the beach, and the only uh, recorded breakfast in the gospel accounts, Jesus meets in his resurrected state, Jesus meets Peter on the beach. And he's going to ask him three questions, three questions to make up for those three denials. All three questions are based on one word. The one word is love. But the, the word changes in Greek every time with a level of intensity. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter's like, well, of course, master, of course I love you. Then go tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Okay, master, I, yeah, I do. Okay, then, then go feed my flock. Peter, Peter, do you love me as an unconditional love? And when Jesus said that to Peter and looked at him, Peter was lupeo, tore up from the floor up, ripped apart inside. And that's the rich young ruler. One thing you lack. You see, the one thing he lacked was a relationship. That's why Jesus pointed out the relationships in those commandments, because the rich young ruler is like, I'm doing all those things. Oh, yeah, what about the first commandment? You will have no little g God before me. Money was his idol. It's where he got his identity, his self-worth. It was misplaced devotion, and guys, we can be the same. We can be the same. Idols we pursue, places we go to get our self-worth and identity. Timothy Keller defined idolatry this way. He said, when you look to anything to give you what only God can give you, and what happens is if you lose whatever that thing is, and it can be a good thing, you're torn apart. You're lupeo. Your devotion is misplaced. So what I want to do is I want to press pause on the rich young ruler story. And what I want to do is I want to look at seven things that, uh, that can seduce our hearts, seven places where our hearts can be devoted to something other than Jesus. And these seven things are things I've struggled with, and I guarantee you one or two will probably fall in your lap. So I'm always preaching to myself first, so I'm not doing the, the angry little preacher thing, okay? So here we go. Let's kick it off. Let's talk about people. God gives us people in our lives for so many reasons, so many wonderful reasons, for community. Uh, we're, we're all made in the image of God for friendship, to share Jesus with others, to reflect Christ with others, to change the world, and that's a great thing. But what can happen is when that person that's in our life, uh, that, that person can take the place of Jesus with a spouse, a loved one, a child, Oh, man, I've been guilty of that. A grandchild, really guilty of that. To where our devotion can be towards that person. And, and, and God's not saying destroy that person, get rid of that person. No, it's like put that person in perspective. We need to love Jesus more than our child. I had to tell my mom that because I'm her favorite child. <laughs> She's watching today. Love you, mom. So people can seduce our hearts. Okay, let's try this one try this one. Uh, pleasure. Let's talk about pleasure, pleasurable activities, especially here in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, from doing stuff on the water to doing stuff in the mountains, the trails, we've got amazing things we can do both indoors and outdoors. I love how God creates, and He wants us to have pleasurable activities. He wants us to have some happiness and joy in life. Life is not all ho-hum, and he gives us great things to do. But what can happen is those activities can take his place. From like me being a gym rat, God's clocked me on that so many times, to let me use another example, video games. 
There's good things about video games. So parents, listen to me on this. There really are. Uh, did you know that the military is using video games right now to help uh, burn victims uh, do pain management? For those of us who struggle with PTSD, uh, video games can help with the, the moral trauma you've gone through and the brain trauma you've, got, you're, you've gone through. That's a good thing. But there's a flip side to that. When a video game becomes your escape route from dealing with life, dealing with a problem relationship, or even something that just sucks you in because it's an addiction, that's when it's an issue. Pleasurable activities, they can seduce our hearts. How about this one? This one really hits home for me, professions, careers. I loved being a soldier for nearly 30 years. I love being a pastor on my worst day. On my worst day, I could not see myself doing anything but this. I love being a pastor. But, but what can happen is I can be a workaholic and I can end up having an unhealthy relationship with my work. And I, I think that's true for so many of us. We tend to go for that title or that position and then we'll do anything to get it. We'll say, if only I make it to that point or get that title, then I'm going to be fulfilled. And worse yet, we sacrifice our families at the altar of the office. You see, no career can die for your sin. It can only compete with the one who did. What about possessions? Possessions. Um, it's good to have to live in an apartment or a house that doesn't have rats crawling all around it and water leaking and they're even running water, whatever. That's a good thing. It's good to have a car that can get you from point A to point B. The problem arises when we say, I've got to have that house. If I don't get that house, people won't respect me. Or if I don't get that car, he or she will never like me. It's a reflection of my personality. Or we can use uh, spending money as a way to, to have an escape route and not deal with the stuff of life. It, it can seduce our hearts. Okay, here we go. Info at cornwallchurch.com. Just send the email. <laughs> Politicians. Politicians can seduce our hearts. Guys, we just went through a crazy midterm election cycle. And guess what? 18 months and some change. We got the presidential elections coming up. And God chooses people to govern, both good, bad, and ugly. And some do it well, some don't do it as well. And what we can do is we can put all of our hope behind a particular candidate, and we can make him or her a saint, and just say, if only this person's elected, then everything's going to be okay. Then when they're not, we're crushed, and we got to go through counseling because we put all of our hope in a person. Guys, please, hear my heart on this. Politicians can't die for your sin. They can only compete with the one who did. Info at cornwallchurch.com. <laughs> and I'm not going to read it. Okay, how about this one? Reputation. I'll talk about social media. Social media is such a good thing. It allows us to, to stay in touch with people, to, to keep tied into people, people we love. It's a platform to share Jesus. But here's what happens. It happened to me. You can want to craft a persona out of social media. That can be all of, uh, you're, you're crafting this persona of who you are. It's a mask you can hide behind. It can be something that sucks the life out of you, that wastes your time, that, that will truly cause a mental health crisis in your life. And, and what can happen is we can get crushed when we get that angry emoji, or we don't get enough shares or enough likes, or we can just become combative. We can cancel people out. It can be completely ugly. Be careful of having social media seduce you. 
We're in a mental health crisis in our country, and I, would, I think a big part of it is because of that, the seduction of the heart. All right, one last one, one last one, uh, noble causes. Noble causes are good things, good causes to get behind, godly causes to get behind. But when we get into these causes, no matter what the cause is, we can look at someone who disagrees with the cause and vilify them. We can cancel them out. And, and, and what we can do is have that become our personality. It can become the place where we get our self-worth and identity. And what Satan does is he uses every form of seduction to take our hearts captive. And we've got to remember that no idol can die for our sin. It can only compete with the one who did. So how do you put those idols in a, in, in a proper category? Sometimes you got to destroy them completely. Sometimes those idols are good things. We got to put them in a place where Jesus is, our, our hearts are devoted to Jesus. So four ways, four ways we do that. Search, surrender, deconstruct, reconstruct. Search, Surrender, deconstruct, reconstruct. Let's talk about these things briefly. Uh, Psalm 139, uh, David says in Psalm 139, verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. So if you want to know if something has a, a, an unhealthy devotion in your heart, has seduced your heart, first of all, you pray. And you just open your hands and say, God, get, show me. Show me what it is. Pray that, just pray Psalm 123, uh, 139, verse 23. And then when God highlights it to you, you simply open your hands and say, I, I release this. Lord, I surrender this. You admit it to God. I'd say you admit it to somebody else too. If there's repentance that's needed, you repent, you, you do an about face from it, and you make amends. And when that happens, you're starting the deconstruction and reconstruction process. At the end of today's teaching, I'm going to give you four questions to help you with that. But just what deconstruction is, in deconstruction, you're unpacking how this thing has seduced your heart. A lot of times, it takes a good counselor to help you out with that. And then once that happens, you start reconstructing. And reconstructing is taking Jesus and putting him as, as number one over these types of things. And as I said, they could be a good thing. It could involve spiritual or scripture memorization, spiritual disciplines, prayer, serving, quiet time, all those types of things, and it could involve counseling. But at the end of the day, those four things help you get a proper perspective of who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus wants with this rich young ruler. Let's go back to verse 21. Uh, Jesus gives a deconstruct, reconstruct example. Jesus says, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. It's the paradox of Christianity. Victory comes through surrender. If you want to be rich, give your money away. Surrender. If you want power, go and serve. Surrender. If you want a fulfilled life, deny yourself. Pick up your cross, follow Jesus, surrender. Surrender is about coming to the end of yourself. And here's something we got we to gotta land on. The end of self is the beginning of life. The end of self is the beginning of life. Have you ever considered that God does some of his best work when you're at the end of your rope? 
when all life, all hell has broken loose in your life and you've tried to control it all, you've tried to be self-sufficient, but at the end of the day, it's like, I can't do it anymore. Jesus, I need you. Every time I, I've, I've been at that broken place and I've done this, God's shown up. You gotta get to your, the end of yourself to truly surrender. We're gonna talk more about that in a second. Back to our story. Verses 23 and 24. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. Okay, here's what Jesus, what Jesus is not saying. You're going to hell if you're rich. As I said, there are so many great things we can do with money. If you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, we've got so many heroes of faith who had money and did great things with it. Uh, Abraham, Job, I would argue Deborah, uh, and Esther, Ruth and Boaz, when they got married, they had, they had some ka-ching. Move to the New Testament. Uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, uh, Philemon, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, all of them had money. If, if, if money is not the issue, it's the love of money. Keller said these words. He said, there's something radically wrong with us, and money has a particular power to blind us to it. It's the chief form of idolatry and has incredible power to keep you and me from God. So the disciples were amazed. Of course they were amazed because in that time, all the religions, and even in this time, all the religions around them taught that if you had wealth, if you were rich, it was because the gods were blessing you. There was a, a sense that if you were poor, it's because there is sin in your life and therefore God is against you. Andrew Walls, a theologian, once said these words. He says, when Jesus starts a movement, he doesn't start with the rich in power. He's always migrating from power and money to brokenness and desolation. It's the reason why the epicenter of Christianity is not in Jerusalem. It starts in Jerusalem. That's where the money and power was. But through persecution... It spreads throughout the world. You know where the epicenter of Christianity is? Right here in our hearts. We surrender when we're at that point of brokenness and desolation and what God wants to call or calls us to is to go to places of brokenness and desolation, to be disciples and make disciples. And as we make disciples, the world changes, but there's a problem, especially here in our country. Walls said these words, this hit home with me. I had to look myself in the mirror and go, wow. When Christianity is at a location of power and wealth for a long time, the radical message of sin and grace in the cross get watered down to a nice, safe religion for respectable people trying to be good. It's just so true. We get comfortable. And guys, I, I want to tread carefully in this, but I think such a problem in our country right now. It's a spiritual problem. There's a reason why we're facing so many problems in our country. And it's not about having a bunch of laws to fix those problems. Good grief, Seattle is spending a billion dollars to solve the homeless problem. And I pray to God it works. But I don't know if that great initiative with all that money has Jesus at the center because it's a spiritual problem. He calls us to places of brokenness and desolation right here in our neighborhood. That's how we change the world, one person at a time through discipleship, being a disciple and making a disciple. 
goes back to the cross. Jesus was all about the cross, giving up power, sending out resources and serving. So the disciples were amazed. Of course they were amazed. Everything that Jesus was saying was flipping what they knew upside down. Verses 24 and 25. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He's getting direct and he's calling them children. Jesus is probably 33 or 34 right now. His disciples, maybe in their late teens, early 20s, maybe the oldest would be mid-20s. And he's saying, let me, son of man, explain this to you. And so he's, what he's saying, when he talks about a camel through the eye of the needle, I mean, we get it. You hold up a needle, you can't get a camel through the eye of the needle. Got it. It would really resonate with the disciples because think about it, they're on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has walls all around it. And some of the gates that go into Jerusalem, they look like a needle. They're narrow at the bottom and they're wide at the top. Jesus would say, enter through the narrow gate. And you could actually fit a camel through the, what's called the needle gates. You'd have to pull off all the stuff from the camel. Wait a second, Hebrews 12 says, Take off all the sin and the stuff that, it, that, that hinders you from running the race. Man, this will preach. i got to think about this. Another sermon, another time. They could force it through a gate. That's one meaning of it. Another meaning could be, could be, I mean, Jesus spoke Aramaic, and most likely his disciples did too, being from Galilee. The word for needle, or I'm sorry, the word for camel and the word for twine in Aramaic sound the same. So try to put twine through a needle, it's pretty hard. Not impossible, but it's hard. It, it, Jesus is not saying that, that being rich is a sin. If that were the case, all poor people would be good, and we know that's not the case. It's that money has a particular power to blind us to the sin in our lives. The one thing we lack, Jesus, verses 26 and 27. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, that's impossible but not with God. For what? What? All things, all things are possible with God. They're saying, if the best of the best can be saved or can't be saved, then who can? Remember the teaching of the day. This rich young ruler represented the best of the best. And the problem is, it was about self-sufficiency. The rich young ruler represented everything about the self-made man or the self-made person. And here's a truth for us in that. Self-sufficiency was their greatest deficiency. Self-sufficiency was their greatest deficiency. I love stories of the self-made man or woman. I do. Uh, the single mom that slugs it out and she gets her degree and, and she's raising kids and then all of a sudden she's doing amazing things. I love those stories. I love the story about the, the rags to riches stories, the, the, the guy that was just born in, you know, in a sharecropper's, uh, sharecropper's family and, and all of a sudden is a millionaire and is doing so many cool things. I love those stories. But what we forget often is the question of who gave you that time to do that? Who gave you that treasure to do that? Who gave you that talent to do that? The rich young ruler represents self-sufficiency. It's the opposite of surrender. So let me land this plane. Verses 28 to 31. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms. Wow, that's seven things that can seduce your heart right there. For my sake, for the gospel's sake. 
but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, look at this along with persecutions. There's a reason right now why the church in China and the church in Iran is exploding and growing in powerful ways, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. He's saying you want significance, live a humble life. Humble life, uh, humility comes from surrender. So what does Jesus tell us to do? Lay down the importance of those things, those idols in our lives, so that we can lift him up as the ultimate thing. When anything becomes the one thing, we're going to miss out on the ultimate thing, and that ultimate thing is who? Jesus. He's the example of surrender. The rich young ruler, his state of mind and his condition of his heart was about love, but it was the love of money and possessions. And so what Jesus calls on us to do is simply surrender that and release. So what I want to do today as I close, I want to give you a challenge. And the challenge is both a question and an action. The question is this, what do I need to surrender? What do I need to surrender? And then the the action is practice the small surrender. That means practice it each day, something each day. So let me give you four questions. We're going to go old school in this. They're not in your bulletin. They're not uh, in, your, in the chat for those of you attending online. Uh, four questions for you. Here we go. Number one, what things in my life are crowding out Jesus? Ask yourself that question. What thing or things in my life are crowding out Jesus? What people in my life, what possessions in my life, what things are crowding out Jesus? That's question number one. Question number two, what thing or things are negatively affecting my relationship with others? What thing or things are negatively affecting my relationship with others? My relationship with others, what's negatively affecting that? Number three, where are you spending the majority of your time, your treasure, and your talent. If you look at your, your, uh, your, your debit card, your ATM withdrawals, all the places you spend money, that might be showing that you've got unhealthy devotion somewhere. Your time, even ministry, can become an idol. Your time, your treasure, and your talent. Last but not least, what or whom are you becoming? What or whom are are you becoming? It's what I love about this series, the beauty of becoming. We want you to become, all of us to become more like Jesus and reflect him in a broken, broken world. Chuck Swindoll said these words. He said, the bottom line question is not, what do you want to be when you grow up? But rather, what are you becoming now that you're grown? Becoming is about surrender and surrender is a state of mind and a condition of the heart. 